Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Joshua Friedman, a graduate of the Yale Medical School, uh, also a graduate of the residency and fellowship program at the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute. Uh, he served as president of the American Association of Technology and Psychiatry and is currently associate clinical professor at the UCLA Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior and co-founder and chief scientist for FKF Applied Research and an expert on a very interesting, hot, and controversial topic of neuromarketing. So, Josh, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Delighted to have you back to Yale. So. First, explain what is neuromarketing. It's a term that is out there in the media a good bit, but some people may not know exactly what it refers to. Well, I'd like to join them because <laughs> I don't know exactly what it refers to. Um, it has become a, a catchphrase for many different things. But I would say this phase of excitement about uh, neuromarketing has really been driven by new brain imaging techniques. Um, first, something called PET scan, which involves injecting a radioactive tracer into to people, uh, which limited how many people wanted to be involved in studies. Um, and then more recently, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which uh, allows you to look at activity in the brain as people experience advertisements, eating foods, or other kinds of information that they might be used as marketing materials. Okay, so the use of in, in the most sophisticated examples, fMRI, to study how people respond to marketing. Yes, I, and it now includes, you know, so after, after it's gotten started, uh, a lot of other people have moved in, uh, and probably there are more companies doing neuromarketing that are, are using older technologies like EEG or the sweating uh, monitoring that using galvanic skin response or heart rates or that kind of thing. And all of those things are now all called neuromarketing. So maybe we can use some examples of your own work to um, see how this might be applied. And I know you've done some very interesting research examining how people respond to very specific ads. And we can talk in a little bit about Coke versus Pepsi, which I think is fascinating and was a good in the media good bet. Um, but you've also done studies of people examining or, I mean, viewing um, Super Bowl ads and how they respond to that. Could you explain how, how you've done that, why you did it, and what some of the results might be? Well, we were, when we were getting started in this particularly, um, we wanted to have some way of measuring what we were doing versus all the other more traditional methods of market research. And everybody tries to study the Super Bowl ads. So... Um, we knew that we would be able to compare to things like polls, self-report, and um, behavioral trafficking. And so we uh, decided we were just going to do all the, uh, try to do as many of the Super Bowl ads as we could. And the first year we did it, we uh, were trying to download the ads real-time um, from just the regular cable feed and feed them straight into the scanner and turn it around um, and get our scans done and analyzed uh, in within a few hours. Normally, it takes two weeks. So after the first time doing that, we realized we wouldn't uh, survive if we tried to do it again. And then we started to work with uh, NBC, the Today Show, 
and they were able to get the ads from the companies so that we could scan them beforehand. And uh, they tend to be very carefully done ads. The companies put lots of money into making them, and they're designed to be evocative and compelling to stand out amid all the other things vying for attention. So you do see uh, striking, interesting responses. So you put people into the scanner while they're watching Super Bowl ads. What sort of things have you found? And what might be an, a real-world example of, of such an ad? Uh, well, there's, there's some interesting uh, experiences of how certain ads turned out. Um, the people are sitting in this, they, they go into the scanner, which is like a giant metal donut, uh, and they have uh, two miniature television screens, one in front of each eye, and then they have headphones on. So they actually are having an experience of just watching the ad. They're, they don't see or feel the scanner around them. And, and while they're watching it, we're watching what's going on in their brain. And there's a couple of very interesting uh, outcomes that we've saw in, this, uh, in some of these ads. One of them, Pizza Hut, has had a number of ads where they try to sell their pizza um, using, in this case, Jessica Simpson as a, a sort of a sexy, flirtatious uh, salesperson. And when you watch the ad, you would think that people would react a lot to that. But in fact, we found that there was very little activity in response to Jessica Simpson. And only when there, a close-up shot of the pizza was shown um, did the brain start to react. And then it started to react very strongly, both people being drawn towards the pizza and then other activity in other parts of the brains that we interpret as them emotionally trying to push themselves away from the pizza, perhaps inducing uh, thoughts of getting fat or being out of control or how they feel after the pizza. But in any case, these areas of the brain associated with disgust and anxiety also got active. So speaking of the, those activation of the parts of the brain that you just mentioned, um, you've, you've made the interesting point that people have these sort of counter-regulatory things going on in the brain, that there are centers that light up that might draw them towards something, pleasure reward centers, but also centers get activated in response to some of these ads that would counter that or evoke different kinds of emotions, anxiety, disgust, and things like that. What's that all about? I, I, uh, I, th I think that's exactly right. I, I think that um, our emotions really are the, the psychic equivalent of muscles. And just like a little baby doesn't, when it's born, can't get its arm or hand to go where it wants to, but, and it slowly learns how to use the muscles and it uses them in, the muscles are arranged in an, in an oppositional way, so there's a muscle um, pulling in one direction and a muscle pulling in the other direction so it can get it to go straight ahead. And the baby is also learning how to use its emotions uh, to, to get it to focus its attention on something, to try to, to obtain food or uh, to get affection from a parent. And it learns how to use emotions that will get it to, to try to pursue something and also how to uh, use emotions to keep it from doing things it shouldn't, like getting scared or anxious, 
of doing something that might hurt it or get the parent angry. And those skills just build all the way through our lifetime. And we're using them when someone is trying to convince us to do something like buy a pizza that we may or may not want. So the ads are generally very skillfully made by people who are good at doing that. And they will evoke some of these automatic reactions of hunger and um, satisfaction and um, an appetite. But because we know that that's going on and that we could easily eat too much and end up regretting the Super Bowl not only for our team losing but for putting on five extra pounds, these other emotions that are, are powerful in pushing us away also get activated so that we can control our behavior. So in, in some ways you've found the biological location or the geography, you will, of skepticism or defense against marketing and things. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, uh, you know, to be fair, we didn't discover it at all. It was been, There's been lots of research showing um, and mapping these different regions. But I, I would say that we are um, the ones who who are advocating the view, which I, I feel very clearly is true, that there is this process going on when people re respond to advertisements in particular, but in all parts of life, where they're trying to manage these emotions so they can manage their behavior. So you've done some fascinating work on Coke versus Pepsi. Tell us about that. Yeah. Right, the Coke versus Pepsi... Is uh, what actually was not done by us. I was that was some more general research um, that was done at Baylor actually, but that study it was very interesting. The the it was two parts of the study. First was just seeing whether people liked Coke versus Pepsi better, and it had nothing to do with the scanner. And they uh, if they didn't know which was which, then they liked them equally. But if you told them like that, them, the, I mean, the, the brain would indicate that they like them. They no, they would. We, this was not in the scanner. So okay, you just, this is you just say, asking people. Here's cup one, cup two. Right, Which okay. cup do you like better? Right. And it would come out equal. But then, if you had cup one labeled Coke and cup cup two labeled Pepsi, they would say they like the Coke one better, even though they both cups have the same drink in it. Mm -hmm. um, so then, something similar was done in the scanner. And they, you can't uh, move when you're in the scanner, so you can't have people holding a cup to their lips and swallowing. So the way it was done is there was a, there's a little tube that snakes into the scanner, and you're lying there, and some of the, the soft drink is just delivered into your mouth. And when people didn't know what they were getting, they, uh, they reacted if they liked the drink with this part of their brain, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is associated with often with emotional connection to a thing or uh, a substance or a person. And, um, and just as they were outside of the scanner, they were equally likely to say that they preferred Coke or Pepsi. But in the scanner, if you indicated to them that they were getting Coke or Pepsi, um, they would again be more likely to say they like the Coke better. But interestingly, in their brain, the area that reacted if they just liked the taste of the drink, not knowing what it was, um, didn't get active at all. So the ventromedial prefrontal cortex was silent, 
and two other areas of the brain got active. And that was the hippocampus, which is associated with memory retrieval, and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is associated with cognitive control of emotions. So if you were just trying to make sense of that, that information, it would seem like people are telling themselves to um, like the flavor and perhaps remembering times that they drank it before uh, or their memory of drinking it to induce the sensation of liking it. You know, it's a sign of how powerful marketing can be, can it, isn't it? Because if the test that you just mentioned showed that people, for the most part, can't distinguish the two things unless they're shown in the can based on taste alone, but yet people have extremely strong loyalties. They're a Coke person or a Pepsi person, and if you ask people in the population, uh, could you distinguish the two, almost everybody will say yes, but very few people can, but yet they have these strong loyalties, so it shows how the image, the colors, the celebrities, all those sort of things create these very strong loyalties, and, and you and others are showing a biological basis for that. Yeah, I, you know, I think that human beings are designed to be loyal, um, and that we evolved to be in little groups, and you had to be on the side of your group if you were going to survive, and, um, and, uh, and that tribalism is kind of hijacked by the advertising, marketing, branding world, where... We're brought in, we're given the offer that we can be represent the kind of person that can be belong if we uh, feel or think a certain way, and so we try to do it. Let's take the word hijack, and, and I'd like to end with this question, uh, sort of about the ethics of work on neuromarketing that I know has been raised. So the, the people that study drug abuse use that term, that something hijacks the brain, and the metaphor there is that the, the drugs take over self-control, willpower, discipline, restraint, whatever it is and uh, make person behave in a way that's contrary to self-interest. Um, the, the, some of the concerns that I've heard raised about work on neuromarketing is that the industry, of course, will have a lot more money to spend on it than, say, the government to help promote healthy foods. Um, and therefore, this work will be done in a way where they get more and more sophisticated about what's going on in the brains of both adults and children, and that this information will be used to uh, continue to sell unhealthy products in an even more aggressive and effective way. And so some people treat it as if there's, some, it's, there's somehow something different about this type of marketing research, and other people say, no, it's just a logical extension of marketing research that's going on. We're just better at looking into the brain to test it. What would you say about that? I, I, mean, I think that that is uh, certainly a, a concern I've had. Um, I think there's three parts that are, uh, to me, reassuring uh, in terms of worrying about the corporate monoliths being able to control people. First is, I don't think that um, this technology for a long time is going to allow anyone to um, get someone to do something they don't want to do. And I actually, when I talk to clients one of the first things I say is, brains work well. They, they're responding to reality. And you, if you tell them something that's not reality, you're going to get pushback from other parts of the brain. They, they'll sense that they can't trust you, and they know you're being dishonest, and you're trying to sell to them. 
They may not be able to put it into words, but parts of their brain are going to light up. And the advice I end up giving all our clients is your advertising shouldn't be convincing someone to do something that isn't um, that is, is somehow not a reflection of their best interest. You should be doing something that having a product that's quality, healthful, good customer service, whatever it is, and then your advertisement should be ringing true, and then you'll see the brain responding um, without this conflict of different regions of the brain doubting or, or pushing back against or being disgusted by your message. And then the, the third part is I, I think there also is a potential for some ethical benefit. While it is true that corporations will have far more money to, to do this uh, kind of uh, research than academics and other watchdog groups, I, they've always been trying to do this, and they've always been trying to get people to do what they want and make money. And I think that human beings are intrinsically very good at sensing how to get someone to do something else. That, uh, and, the, and the people who are in the marketing world are people who are particularly gifted at that. That's how they ended up in the marketing world. Um, and I think that uh, being able to look at an advertisement using this technology and tell whether it seems to be trying to overcome someone's natural and appropriate resistance to something or whether it's actually engaging their different cognitive parts of their brain in a, in a synthetic way that um, is actually trying to convey information and educate um, would help differentiate between ads that will be considered good and ethical ads and ads that are not good. And I, I think the, um, the history of sub subliminal advertising, whether or not it's effective, um, it was a case where when it was uh, reported that it was being done and there was a way to tell what the, the marketers were trying to do and there was a clear line between good and bad, um, it really uh, became something that would the company would have to take too big a PR hit to keep trying to do. So I would like to have it be that, uh, and, I, and I anticipate this might happen, that there will be organizations that will be um, working in the public interests like a consumer's union that will do, they'll be rating ads and going, this is an ad that is a good ad, this ad has a very bad score and in terms of trying to deceive, manipulate, etc. Um, and, and so I, I think in the end, um, it will probably, if it does end up ha having a significant effect, will also have a good significant effect. All right, thank you. Thank you very much for the thoughtful response. Our guest today was Joshua Friedman, graduate of the Yale Medical School and associate clinical professor at the UCLA Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior and co-founder and chief scientist for FKF Applied Research. We appreciate you being with us. 
Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of other excellent podcast visitors we've had with us and a variety of other resources on obesity and food policy. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Uh, please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of other excellent podcast visitors we've had with us and a variety of other resources on obesity and food policy. Thank you.